Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Our guest today is Wendy Perlman, an associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Northwestern University. She received her PhD in government from Harvard University and is a graduate of the Center for Arabic Studies Abroad program. She's worked on three books, Occupied Voices, Stories of Everyday Life in the Second Intifada, uh, Violence and Nonviolence, and the Palestinian National Movement, and the book we're discussing today, out from HarperCollins in 2017, We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled Voices from Syria. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm really excited. So on the New Books podcast, we normally start with a little bit of a biographical note, sort of. Um, how did you come to the study of the Middle East? Through a college semester abroad in Morocco in the mid-1990s. Um, I'd grown up um, between the suburbs of Chicago and Lincoln, Nebraska, and I'd never been outside the United States. I had no previous background in the Middle East and had really not any travel experience at all and decided that I wanted to study abroad during my junior year uh, semester in North Africa and a semester in Spain, basically because it was a cheap way to have a single plane ticket and have two different experiences. So I went to Morocco where I began studying Arabic. I lived with a local family. I experienced the month of Ramadan and I just got hooked on, on the Middle East or the Arab world. So I went back to Morocco several times after that semester. I studied Arabic there for a summer and then um, for various months on and off during an academic year um, after I did a Fulbright uh, fellowship in Spain studying the situation of Moroccan immigrants and then gradually moved further eastward until I found myself in Palestine and, and ended up writing two books about Palestine. So it was a bit of serendipity of wanting to see the world um, that brought me to North Africa and has left me in the study of the, the Middle East and North Africa ever since. So you mentioned that you wrote two books on Palestine, and one of them is a, another collection of interviews. So the book we're talking about today is a collection of interviews, but Occupied Voices, your first book, is also a collection of interviews. How did that book come about? Yeah. So I studied at Birzeit University for a semester from January to June 2000. Um, I took two political science classes and my Arabic was pretty good at that point. So they let me take uh, classes with Palestinian students in the regular political science program for Palestinian um, students, not just the international students. I was taking classes and I started interning at a human rights organization in Ramallah and um, was found in those two experiences that I learned so much, but I learned even more just by sitting with Palestinians and hearing their stories, hearing the everyday experience of occupation, hearing their stories of the first Intifada from before then, about what life was like, about travel, about family, about hopes, aspirations, um, both sad and happy stories, hopeful and um, traumatic stories about Palestinian life. Um, so that sort of captured uh, my interest in how personal stories are a way of learning about political conflicts, how they're a way of learning about political situations, how personal stories are a, a window into all things political. Um, that was my experience then in sort of what 
now in retrospect, we can see as the waning days of the Oslo peace process. Um, after I finished that time in the West Bank, I, I moved on to Egypt, where I was studying Arabic for a year, and was there when the second intifada started. And as I watched the news, mostly the American or Western news, trying to follow it from Egypt, just, just get a sense of what was happening in this uh, part of the world where I just spent time and built relationships and had really um, grown an attachment. Um, I, I found that the Western media was just not providing me anything like the stories that I knew to be so instructive and so telling. They weren't at all conveying to me what life was like in the West Bank and Gaza during these first months of the Intifada, what people's hopes were, their dreams, their expectations, their disappointments, their losses. And I felt like if I wanted to gather those stories, if I weren't, wasn't finding them, I should try to gather them myself. So I finished my first semester of, of my Arabic program, the CASA program that you just mentioned that was based at, at the American University in Cairo. When classes ended, I sort of took the first bus I could and went back to the West Bank. And I spent the next three or four weeks, essentially the winter vacation during the academic program there in Cairo, um, basically traveling around the West Bank and then also in Gaza, interviewing any Palestinian I could about their stories from the Second Intifada. And I found that the stories were not just about, the, at that point, the first three months of, of the Second Intifada, but of course their stories stretched to life much before then, and as well, their hopes for the future. So interviewing people and gathering these stories was just a way of understanding so much of, of the Palestinian story. And that really helped solidify my conviction, I guess, which I really hold until today, that there is a way of, of collecting individual stories that show you the the amazing uniqueness of each human life, but that also can be combined to tell a collective story about nations, about societies, about political stages, about political phenomena. So um, I gathered these individual stories then in the West Bank and Gaza, basically December 2000, January 2001, and then over the next few years, slowly transcribed and translated these audio recordings of interviews that were mostly conducted in Arabic into written English, and then slowly put them together into the book that was then published in 2003 called Occupied Voices. So the format for that book is slightly different than the format for the book that we'll mostly be focusing on today. There it's it's structured around individuals. So there is a series of profiles of individuals with a name, with a picture, and then that person's individual story. Um, and those stories, I think, are quite moving because these are all amazing individuals, but also each individual represented some major issue in the news at that point um, in the Intifada's development. So there is the mother of a child who had been killed to focus on this aspect of child martyrs and, and people who were killed in the course of, of uh, protesting and so forth. There was a farmer whose um, olive trees had been uprooted to talk about issues of the land. Um, there were people from Gaza, there were people from East Jerusalem, there are people from the West Bank, there are people from different generations, different sort of sectors to show the diversity of, of the Palestinian mosaic. Um, but so each person was an individual story, but also a window into some issue that was particularly permanent and prominent at the time. What I really appreciated about this book, and I, I'm sure is present in the first book, is just the fact that you capture so much of that texture of everyday life. Mm -hmm. um, these little things that sort of stick with you even after so many, like, I, I don't know. So I grew up during, I grew up in the West Bank during the second Intifada. And mm -hmm. one thing that really stuck with me was this white gate um, 
that was um, along the checkpoint that I used to cross to get to school because I grew up in the village next to the university that you went to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that white gate always really stuck with me. And it's one of those things that I can't really get out of my head. And years later, I saw a picture of it. And that, that those little details are present in your book. And you actually have an excerpt for us today that has one of those little details. Would you mind reading it? I would be thrilled to read it. So this is, um, uh, we'll talk more about the the structure of the book with sort of this, again, this mosaic of different stories. But um, when you invited me to, to, to read one, I chose this story from, or this entry from this testimonial by Beshet, who's um, now a film student in Istanbul and who was a high schooler in Damascus at the time that the Syrian revolution began. Um, and this is a, a an excerpt from the section of the book that talks about the very beginnings of the Syrian revolution. So this was even February 2011, before mass protests began, before anybody even imagined that mass protests would begin in Syria. And there were a few small protests, one of Syrians in Egypt outside the Egyptian embassy in solidarity with the Egyptian revolution that was happening at that point. And then another one outside the Libyan embassy in solidarity when the Libyan uprising began. And these were small ways in which Syrians began to participate politically in protest. Many in their heart of hearts were thinking, we want to protest against our regime too. But that was uh, still uh, unheard of at the time. But people began to push the barrier of what was accepted and possible politically by participating in these protests outside the embassies for other states. So this is Besher's uh, recollection of that time. And he said, my brother went to the protest outside the Egyptian embassy in Damascus in solidarity with the Egyptian revolution. When people organized a similar protest outside the Libyan embassy, I decided to go. By the time I got there, the demonstration was already underway. I saw this girl holding a candle. The wax was melting all over her hand, but she didn't stop her chanting against Gaddafi. Security guards were surrounding the embassy and recording everyone's faces. I was a little afraid, but also so happy. Later, I called my brother in Saudi Arabia. I told him that I went to the protest and was chanting, freedom, freedom. I felt like I needed to tell him about it. I said, you have to experience this. I can't describe it. It was like letting out all the energy of you. All the things you'd kept hidden for so many years, you felt like you're not on this earth, like your soul is just flying somewhere else. I had an MP3 recorder in my pocket and recorded the protest. That was a dangerous thing to do, so I kept it hidden. I still have the recording. Even now, I listen to it every month or so. I just replay it again and again and again. And when I listen, I remember exactly how I felt when I held it in my pocket. Thank you so much for reading them. That's from which section of the book? Because the book is divided into eight sections, right? Yes. So that is in section three on the revolution. So the book is, is organized chronologically. The, um, the first parts, the first part talks about people's memories of life under the regime of Hafez al-Assad. It covers issues of the eighties, people's recollections, especially of the massacre in the town of Hama or the stories their parents told them about Hama and other things about, uh, the regime 
regime of Hafez al-Assad with a big focus on the atmosphere of fear um, that was created under that regime. The second part then moves to how life changed uh, after Bashar al-Assad came to power in the year 2000. And there, there's a special focus on these sort of neoliberal market reforms um, that in some ways uh, privatized a lot of the, the country's industries and, and, and firms, moved the country in a direction from a state-dominated economy to a more free uh, market economy, but created huge new opportunities for corruption, for crony capitalism, at the same time, subsidies and services and infrastructure declined such that many Syrians felt that their lives really got worse. And this added a layer of economic indignity and suffering and grievance to the already firm foundation of senses of politically being unfree, of not having the basic rights to freedom of expression, to be able to um, make political parties, to have meaningful elections, to hold leaders in any way accountable. So the political grievance was there and remained uh, largely unchanged. And then another layer of economic grievance really pushed Syrians towards the edge. The third section then is the start of the Syrian revolution, beginning with how Syrians first reacted to hearing about news of protests in Egypt and Tunisia. They're sort of slow questioning, will it happen in Syria as well? Maybe yes, maybe no. And then those first incipient protests, Bashar's recollections from outside the Libyan embassy is one of them. There were other protests in Damascus and elsewhere. And then the um, protest in Deda in southern Syria that um, launched it was sort of the first mass, real mass level, spontaneous participation of a protest on March 18th, 2011, that ended when security forces killed two unarmed protesters, creating the first two deaths of protesters in the Syrian revolution and how things just continue to spread and escalate thereafter. Let's go back to 2011 and sort of look at how, on your end of the story, on this side of the Atlantic, how did you see the Syrian revolution? How did you anticipate it going and how did it sort of develop in your imagination of it? Mm-hmm. So I was um, in Chicago, you know, watching the the Arab Spring unfold from my computer screen, like most Americans and like most people who study the Middle East, um, you know, were caught off guard, totally surprised, but was also caught up in sort of the euphoria of 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 the people's power of um, of people going out into the streets of saying enough is enough is demanding change um, the kind of empowerment and liberation and social solidarity that the Arab Spring really uh, represented at the time and like many people I wondered will it happen in Syria as well and that's a question I would ask of the Syrians I interviewed did you think there'd be a revolution in Syria and some Syrians said yes we thought that we suffer the same injustices and same oppression that they were suffering in those other places that rose up. So we would have to as well. And other Syrians have said, you know, I thought, no way. We're too afraid. We've been too intimidated. Our regime is strong. It has various assets that um, perhaps Mubarak in Egypt or Qaddafi in Libya did not have. And those Syrians said, you know, they didn't think there would be a revolution uh, in their own their own society. So I think there really was an element of surprise. Certainly I had it, and I'll not just surprise watching from afar, but it's really fascinating as Syrians recall having it them, themselves. 
So, but the, but the revolution began, people went out into the streets. And as I watched it unfold for me, what was most compelling and most captivating was the sheer amount of courage that it took for people to go out into the streets. So there was this expression that you heard in Tunisia and heard in Egypt, but really took on different dimensions in Syria, which is that the Arab Spring happened because the barrier of fear broke, you know, in Qasr Hajis al-Khawf. And in, what I think that meant in Syria is that given the atmosphere of fear and intimidation, the systematic way that over decades the Assad regime had um, cultivated fear and you know, um, planted fear in people's hearts, such that many said, you know, the expression, uh, the walls have ears. We're afraid to speak about politics, even in our own, in our own homes. So between that fear and also some sort of systematic co-optation and corruption, the way that people's very vital interests were linked to the regime, all created a space in which it seemed very unlikely that people would be able to muster the courage and muster the sheer will to go out and, and demand change. So when Syrians did that, I was, was apt, absolutely captivated and fascinated, and especially by the question of how they mustered the courage to go out and protest. How did people break the barrier of fear? So in many ways, the, the sections about the revolution, the slow way that protests began, the slow way that they spread and escalated, and also for on the human level of what it was like to protest, that's something I really wanted the book to capture. So even in this excerpt then from Beshev, what I love about it is his description of what it felt like to go out and say, freedom, freedom. Even though he was doing it outside the Libyan embassy against Gaddafi, in his heart, he was also thinking for his own society. And as he said, you felt like you were flying. You felt like something that was captured inside you your whole life, you were finally able to breathe and let it out. And what I find even most remarkable about that excerpt is even years later, even in the, you know, and despite the fact of all of the darkness and the tragedy that's happened in Syria, what we see now, the forced migration of half the population of you know, at least half a million dead, the sheer amount of destruction, the hundreds of thousands disappeared and tortured to death. I mean, Syria, it's an absolute tragedy of, of atrocities and war crimes still those who participated in or championed the revolution look back at that moment as some of the best moments of their lives, the the time when people found their voice, when they felt free. Um, and Besher saying, I just play it again and again and remember what it felt like. That's what the Syrian revolution means to those who supported it. And now when we see war and refugee flight and destruction and rubble, it's easy to forget what the revolution meant to people. It's easy to forget what it felt like. Um, that's what I wanted the book to capture, um, capture in order to honor and express, but by putting it in a larger historical context, both what life was like before that moment and how the uprising and war has developed since that moment, we can begin to fully appreciate it um, in all of its complexity and all of its sort of historical significance. So how did the book itself emerge as a project? So after I you know, spent those, those months sort of watching the Arab Spring uh, unfold in, in 2011, um, I really so interested by this question of how the barrier of fear broke and what it felt like to go out and protest, I um, I decided that I wanted to go interview Syrians. So similar to sort of the motivation behind Occupied Voices, there was a sense of great 
events of historical transformation, there is something special that we can understand about those events through the everyday, through the personal, through individual stories about what it is like to live those events, what it's like to participate them, to uh, both make change through them and to be changed by them. I just, my intuition was that personal stories provide a window onto these on these major transformations that's special and it's worth documenting. So I first had my chance to go in and start interviewing Syrians in 2012. And I was teaching during the academic year, had various things to, to finish up and it took some, some, some time and preparation to be able to make a big uh, summer field research trip. So for me, that was able to happen in summer 2012. At that point, conditions in Syria were, were already quite dangerous, or at least I felt if I wanted to go gather Syrian stories about politics and about their experience of politics, I at least already felt myself too afraid to go do those types of interviews inside Syria. And at that point, there were already hundreds of thousands of Syrians beginning to flee the country as refugees. So I decided that for me, the, the safest and most practical way to begin collecting these stories was to to do them among the Syrians who had um, who had left the country. So I made my first interviewing trip in 2012 to Jordan, where I spent about a month and a half or so, basically, again, sort of interviewing every Syrian I could about their stories of, of, of the uprising, but also about their stories in general, sort of what is it like to be Syrian? What does it mean to be Syrian? What do people outside Syria need to understand Um in order to understand Syria and how could this be reflected or captured or expressed in any individual just talking about his or her life. So I recorded uh, as many interviews as I could. You know, I started with a few contacts and those snowballed into others. Um, I spent, uh, made several visits to the Zaatari refugee camp that had just opened at that point and otherwise met people scattered around the country of Jordan. Um, by 2013, I knew I wanted to go and gather more interviews and also knew that as most Syrians at that point were fleeing um, the borders, who fl most Syrians who fled Syria fled the borders closest to their homes. I knew that in Jordan, I was talking mostly to people from, from southern Syria if I wanted to get a, a, a greater range of perspectives, and especially people from the northern um, parts of, of Syria, I should go to Turkey. So I went to Turkey and spent um, a couple of months there interviewing people from other walks of life and other backgrounds. Um, I also made a return trip to Jordan so I could revisit some of the people I'd met the previous year. And then I just continued. So 2000. 15, I was based in Turkey again and did more interviews. 2016, I made a trip to Lebanon and interviewed people there. And by 2016, it was clear that there was a new part of the Syrian story that I had not imagined would ever exist when I first began. And that was the mass flight of people to Europe. So when I first began interviewing Syrians, you know, in Irbid and Rumtha, Jordan, it never occurred to me that I would one day go to Stockholm or go to Berlin um, in order to capture more of, of what the Syrian experience was like. But after um, 2015 and, and the flight of so many people um, to Europe, that also became a part of the story. And I think that the journey of, of Syrians to Europe also especially became a part of the story in you know, the Western imagination um, at that point with what came to be called the refugee crisis. So summer 2016, I also then made uh, trips to Europe, um, shorter trips to Sweden and Denmark, and then a longer amount of time in, in Germany, which is the largest recipient of, Germ of Syrian refugees in Europe. Um, and I'm in Germany again this summer, continuing with that work. So the book then is able to have these uh, testimonials from Syrians 
over different years, 2012, 2013, and onward all the way to 2016, which has been valuable because people talked about different things and had slightly different perspectives as time evolved. And I was able to, to capture that at different moments of time. And then also, of course, that sort of variation over space about Syrians who are in uh, in each of the, the three major border countries neighboring Syria that are the largest recipients of Syrian refugees, and then also the perspective of some who, who've made it on to, to Europe. And then there are a few extra interviews in there with people, Syrian refugees in the United States as well. What were the interviews themselves actually like? Because you mentioned earlier this atmosphere of fear mm-hmm. and this fear of speaking out. And I can imagine that that fear somewhat carries with individuals as they they move beyond Syria itself. Um, Mm -hmm. Just because being in a host country, it's not exactly being hosted. I mean, sometimes these countries are quite, Mm -hmm. they're not exactly the most hospitable towards refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wonder how likely people are to divulge details to an interviewer. Um, what was that process like? And how did you get people to talk to you and open up? Mm-hmm. It's, no, it's a, a terrific question. And you're absolutely right that the host, host countries are, you know, are, have lots of ways in that they're less than, than, than hospitable. I mean, each, especially Jordan, Lebanon, and, and Turkey all, um, you know, can, are very on, on solid ground when talking about um, how many refugees that they've absorbed and how this is taxing to state budgets, to resources, to infrastructure, and so forth. But um, there are also ways in which the Syrians with whom I spoke were filled with um, complaints and criticisms about the ways in which they um, were not uh, able to create dignified lives, um, basic rights for themselves and their families, um, and so forth in the, in the country. So that the way that refugees suffer in different states is definitely a, a story all in its in its own right. Um, as far as... Uh, um, the interviews themselves. So they really varied. There were times when I had a very brief encounter with someone of maybe half an hour. There are times when I did a one-on-one session with someone that might last three or four hours when the person just talked and talked and I sat there and recorded and recorded. There were times in which I was in a family environment in which various members of the family in a home would all jump in and talk amongst themselves. There were times in which I recorded in a coffee shop where you might have several friends or colleagues and they would basically have a conversation among themselves and I was recording. So there's a mixture of one-on-one sessions and group sessions and shorter sessions and longer sessions. Most of them were probably one-on-one longer sessions. And that's why I really was able to sort of delve into a person's life and have develop a kind of, of, um, of intimacy in which a person would really divulge. So uh, I was in many ways, surprised and remain surprised now the degree to which most Syrians with whom I spoke were really ready and willing and happy to talk and talk openly. And it comes through in the books that there are discussions of events that are, and experiences that are sometimes tremendously personal, tremendously painful, um, terrible stories of loss, of seeing the death of loved ones, the disappearance of loved ones. There are several long stories um, and interviews uh, about um, people who were in prison, talking about their experience in prison. And the truth is there were even more prison stories that I collected that just I weren't, wasn't able to fit into the book. So, um, and those are stories about torture, about overcrowding, about disease, about filth, about starvation. Um, they're, they're horrendous. Um, so people, I, I was surprised by how um, open people were with 
with speaking. And, and this made me think of a couple of things. One is perhaps that, you know, people had so many people had experienced such tremendous trauma that they wanted to speak. They felt some relief in speaking. And many times when I talked with people, they would say at the end, you know, I feel like I got something out. I feel a bit of, of relief and comfort from having told my story. Um, some people told me, you know, I've never told my story to anyone before. And this was the, the first time. Um, and it almost in some ways made sense to me, but maybe pe- Syrians wouldn't be telling their stories to other Syrians because everybody had experienced loss and many people had experienced the same traumas. So, so, you know, why discuss it with others? But somebody comes from the outside and says, you know, I know nothing. Explain everything to me from the beginning. And there's an opportunity to really to really jump in and, and talk about things and maybe reflect upon things that your everyday normal life um, just don't allow you. Um, and also, I think more politically speaking, the degree to which people were remarkably unafraid in speaking to me showed in some ways really how much that barrier of fear had broken. For many people, speaking and telling their story was a political act. It was an act of dissent. It was taking a political position to to talk, to say what they had experienced, to criticize the politics of, of, uh, of the Assad regime, to criticize even the revolution itself. These were ways in which they were insisting upon being the free agents that they were fighting to be. So it was for many people, a political act to, to speak politically and openly and without fear. And I think that's why so many people then were able to do it with me. Uh, I guess one last element is that many people had a sense that their stories were not being heard, that their ideas were not arriving to larger publics, that there were ways in which they were being misrepresented or even slandered. They were very aware that the Assad regime's depiction of the of the revolution was one of terrorists who were spies or who were co-opted, who wanted radical agendas, who, you know, were proxies from Saudi Arabia or whatever, um, that there was a sense that they they that various medias, whether in the West or in Syria itself, were misrepresenting who they are and what they want and what they're all about. So they wanted to set the record straight. So there were definitely a few people I came across who you could see still had the fear inside them, who spoke in a way that was very hesitating, who um, would speak and sort of look maybe around one shoulder or the other, fearing that maybe there were still informants. And those were interviews that I usually tried to end as quickly as possible. When I could see that it was not comfortable for the person who was speaking, that maybe somebody agreed to be interviewed by me, but once they got going, really felt uncomfortable. Those were, those were times that I just, uh, it wasn't good for me or good for that person to continue. So I usually try to to, to wrap that up pretty, pretty quickly and not, and not go forward. The last thing I wanted to do in collecting these stories was to cause anybody discomfort or, or harm. No, absolutely. And I, I, I think you get that sense from reading the interviews, not necessarily mm-hmm. listening to them, that people were willing and open to talk. And yeah. like you said, that barrier of fear has come down, just the amount of detail that people provide, the amount of texture in their mm-hmm. interviews, they're, they're clearly telling you a story that, feels complete to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so about that atmosphere of fear and underrepresentation, one thing I think most of the general public in the English-speaking world, at least, um, doesn't get from 
general news media about the Syrian revolution is the historical context. And the historical context you provide very well in, in the form of interviews and this atmosphere of fear and just how authoritarian Syria was um, before the revolution. Can you give our listeners a sense of what that was like? Because that's easily, I think, the first... Um, it's it's definitely one of the larger sections in the book. Mm-hmm. No, thank you so much for 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 catching that and for sensing and appreciating that part of the project because I absolutely agree with you. And I think in general, um, there's often a kind of you know historical amnesia or lack of historical context um, that that many uh, you know average. English language followers have in, in, in just in following the news. And you think about, you know, journalists have this pressure of the time pressure to report on the day's news. They don't often have the time or this, the space in terms of words to go into this historical context. So news reports on what's happening that morning and we all digest that news. It's very easy to lose sight of where this is all coming from. And it's also often even, you know, difficult to understand that historical background in Unless you seek it out, so for me in writing a book, I had I had greater freedom to go into that history in a way that 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 news of the hour reporting does not have, and that's a, a luxury that I really wanted to make use of. I, I myself, I'm a political scientist, but I think historically, I think there's you can't understand a revolution unless you understand what the revolution was rising up against, and you also can't understand and I think appreciate how amazing the Syrian revolution was unless you appreciate how difficult it was to happen. And it was difficult to happen because of that atmosphere of sphere, of atmosphere of fear and also sort of the atmosphere of co-optation that was systematically constructed over decades. So the first two sections really try to capture life before 2011 um, to give that vital, that vital background. So it's people's memories of what life was like under, as I said, under Hafez al-Assad, there are several testimonials that make reference to the events of the 1980s, which began as as um, sort of political agitation among students and uh, the lawyers' unions and other types of syndicates and so forth. And the, the most organized opposition force at the time in Syria was the Muslim Brotherhood, which started carrying out various violent attacks and then launched something of an armed insurrection in the town of Hama. And the Hafez al-Assad regime basically sent in troops and tanks, flattened entire neighborhoods of the city of Hama, and killed an unknown number of thousands tens of thousands estimates go up to 40,000 individuals, many of them civilians who had nothing to do with the Muslim Brotherhood or anything else. And this was a way in which the regimes taught a lesson to Hama and to the rest of the country. This is what will happen to those who rise up. And I don't think it can be underestimated the degree to which this scarred and scared a generation or two generations about any kind of political involvement and dissent. And those who lived this era were traumatized in some ways and taught their children don't participate in politics. Don't even talk about politics. It's better for you. It's better for us. Just stay away. Um, and that's the atmosphere that really, I think, took root over, over decades in Syria. Um, and then the, the book carries on from Hafez to Bashar and how many thought when Bashar came to power in 2000, he would bring change. He brought himself, it portrayed himself as a reformer who was going to modernize the country and, and create new liberties and then very quickly clamp down on, on those Syrians who wanted to, um, act 
thinking that this would be a new era of reform, who signed petitions and formed salons in the, the movement that became known as the Damascus Spring in the early 2000s. And the regime very quickly arrested um, people, shut down those initiatives, again, sending a message, well, maybe we're not ready for reform and for freedom after all. So the book in that sense goes through these ups and downs from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, this long history of lack of political accountability, violations of human rights, mass political imprisonments, intimidation, um, uh, a media sector that just sort of presented you know, propaganda from the palace and so forth. All of that is necessary to understand uh, what the Syrian revolution is all about. The very achievement it was for people to go out into the streets um, and also really to get some sense of the nature of the strength and the ferocity of this regime that people rose up to challenge. Um, And of course, that shows itself in its it's, it's extreme use of violence to repress people until now. So, I mean, we've talked about sort of how you textured the book mm-hmm. using um, the fear and the revolution. And then, as you mentioned just now, just sort of how monstrous the state is and how tragic this revolution, the civil war, whatever, what have you, mm-hmm. has become. But one thing that you have in the book, um, and there are these little flashes of mm-hmm. it in different places, is humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, wondering, I mean, there was an incident where um, someone went to the wrong protest and it was, I mean, just the way the interviewee told the story, he clearly remembers this as funny and intended um, the interviewer, in this case you, mm-hmm. to, 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 to laugh. Um, and I was wondering just how many of those instances come up, because I think humor is this powerful way to interpret the past, but also to um, to deal with that on a daily basis when these are your everyday lived experiences when they're as tragic as this. That's how you get through it is, is humor. No, absolutely. And I think that there are many books left still to be written about the role of humor and the role of satire. I mean, really in the Arab Spring in general, but in the Syrian revolution in particular, there is this blossoming, especially on social media and Facebook sites and so forth, of satirical uh, YouTube clips of memes of jokes. Um, there's there's everything from you know the puppet shows to um, to to slogans and 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 songs. There's it is amazing the degree to which Syrians have been able to maintain their sense of humor and in some ways use it as a way of making sense of 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 the nightmarish um, uh, events that have consumed the country. So uh, there's a lot of satire out there in cultural production and artistic production um, by Syrians today. And it certainly comes through in the interviews too. Um, so this, that particular excerpt that you are referring to, that was from one of the, inter- the interviews I did that was sort of with a group of individuals. So there were several 20-something um, Syrian young men and women who were all good friends we were in uh, a living room in, in Amman, Jordan, and one was sort of telling stories one after another, and they were kind of riffing. Somebody was, one person was remembering, oh, I remember the story from the beginning of the, of the revolution, and somebody would say, well, meanwhile, you know, in Aleppo, this was happening here, and the person from Damascus would say, that reminds me of such and such. So it was really a beautiful moment of watching um, Syrian young people tell funny stories among themselves. And I was able to just sit there with the tape recorder and, and capture some of that. So this was a story of someone yeah, who's, who says, you know, 
why is everybody else, this is when many protests would begin after Friday's um, launching from Friday prayers at mosques. And he said, you know, usually one person would stand up and say Allahu Akbar or something as a signal for everybody else to stand up and to go forward as a protest. And he said, why is everybody else always the one to start the protest? Maybe I should be the one to start the protest sometime. So he goes to the mosque where he expects to be a protest and he stands up to start getting urging others to to protest and they all give him these strange looks and it turns out he's in the wrong mosque um so there are other yeah there are various other stories of 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 that of that sort so again i think it's this remarkable sort of testament to the resilience of of the syrian people to be able to to continue to laugh in spite of it all um and it's another window into into the society into the culture and to the, the human experience of both conflict and um, loss, but also hope and resilience. No, it's tragic that resilience doesn't come up. I mean, of course, as you mentioned, there, there are um, certain restrictions that news media mm-hmm. has, but there's also certain biases they have um, towards reporting the news in certain ways. And resilience isn't really part of the story. And it really strips refugees or anyone living in conflict when portrayed via media of any of their dignity. And I think you get a lot of this in this book just because, again, there's so much texture to it. And one of the ways you bring texture is you, um, one of the many ways is uh, you mentioned the diversity mm-hmm. of Syria and itself, different um, religious groups. Um, did you have that intention in mind when you went and interviewed different religious or ethnic groups? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted... Um... I wanted to capture sort of as much of the diversity of the Syrian population as I could. And that's, you know, I went to Jordan and then I wanted to go to to Turkey and then I felt like I needed to go to Lebanon and then I needed to go to Europe and so forth, in part because different sectors of society wind up in different places based upon where they're from and what their social class background is and so forth. So as much as possible, I wanted to get people from different home regions in Syria because every town and village has had its own story and um, and they're each different and they're each a part of this Syrian experience. So from different regions, people from rural areas and urban areas, men and women, Women, people from different generations. Um, I'm continually struck by how uh, age and generation has had an effect on how the different ways that people have have experienced these events. It's very different for young people, um, for children, for for people in sort of a middle range, and for for older folks. All have different perspectives, um, and then of course people of different religious backgrounds as as well. So um, you know. My field work and, and snowball sampling can, can be kind of a chaotic exercise of you meet somebody who introduces you to somebody else. And then, and even now, as I'm working on a new project in Berlin, I'm continually basically asking everyone I know, you know, do you know any Syrian person who would sit and talk to me? And then everyone after every interview, do you know anybody else who would talk to me and so forth? And my objective was to have sort of as many different entry points as possible into different social networks and different social worlds and just follow them as far as they could go. So that could be having, you know, a Lebanese neighbor say, yes, I know a Syrian who works in such and such, or a Syrian person saying, oh yeah, well, you're heading to Denmark. You should meet my cousin who's now there in Denmark. So I just followed every road that I, that I could. Um, But along the way, really wanted to have and really wanted to include um, stories and people from different sort of social sectors to be able to capture some of that diversity. You know, there's much, much more diversity to the Syrian story than I could ever capture in, in a short book of this length, but at least wanted to give readers some sense of it, that there are Christians and there are Sunni Muslims and there are Alawites and there are, um, 
um, Ismailis and Druze and different sort of sectarian backgrounds. But there's also, uh, you know, rich and poor, educated, not educated men and, and women, um, rural, urban and so forth. All of it is a part of, of Syria. So while I can't in any way claim to represent accurately and fully the f- full diversity of Syria, I at least wanted to give people some tastes so they could at least know to go and, 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 and research that further and search for other points of views and, and probe any one dimension more if that's something of interest to them. No, that's something I also really appreciate. As you mentioned class, mm-hmm. I think you definitely don't get those voices um, in news media, in Syrian accounts that are coming out now, you don't necessarily get just the full diversity of different class experiences of what it must have been like mm-hmm. um, and how that affected people's decisions uh, to participate or not in many different mm-hmm. ways. Um, but one thing I, I, I saw um, towards the end of the book, um, but also just in, in my knowledge of what's going on right now and talking to different Syrians is the perspective towards the future. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of hope and Oftentimes, this is quite surprising. There isn't regret for what mm-hmm. happened. Um, how do you, how did you hope to represent that mm-hmm. in the book? It's it's fascinating. Um, I mean, I do. There there are some voices of regret in in the book, or there's some voices that are coping with the question of of regret, and then there are others who say, in spite of it all, the revolution was right. We needed to go out. If it wasn't then, in that time, it would be some other time. And, you know, eventually justice will have to prevail and, and dictatorships cannot last forever. So there's, there is a lot of, of hope, but it's a real, a real pained hope. I mean, there's one, one voice in, um, that I'll never forget in, in the book that says something like, you know, we thought that, that freedom had a price. We knew that freedom had a price and democracy had a price, but we didn't know it would be this high. And maybe we've paid a, a high, a price higher than democracy itself and higher than freedom itself. So there, there are certainly people who are, I think, who are wrestling with the question of, was it wrong to have gone out? Um, uh, was it naive to have gone out? Um, and those are really tremendously painful, painful questions. But there are people in spite of it all who say, um, uh, we went out and we stood up for, for dignity and for freedom and um if it, if that has led to the horrors we see, it's not because the revolution it was wrong. It was because this regime was was ferocious. It was because the international community didn't stand by uh, unarmed protests for 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 freedom. Um, it was because the international community sort of abandoned the right to protect. Um, there are a host of other uh, places to point the blame. Um, but it's it's hard, and I think that's one thing that might be evolving over time. Um, when I did interviews in 2012, there was certainly no no voice of of regret. And with with time, I think that the number of people who who wonder um, was it wrong, um, was it worth it, uh, will it ever be worth it? Those those questions now I think are things that 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 Syrians really wrestle with. But there's certainly no uniform opinion about at least what I've encountered about where people. Um, where people find themselves on the spectrum of, of hope and despair. And it must really vary with what people have experienced. Those who've lost family members, those who've lost limbs, um, you know, those who've, who've lost everything might have a different kinds of questions than those who see it from afar. Um, but it's, I think, very mixed and complex uh, 
um, uh, things that, that, that Syrians wrestle with for sure. So I was wondering, what are your hopes for this book and what sort of audience are you hoping to get? Well, thank you. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, a, a popular book that's published by a popular press aimed for a popular audience. So I'm, you know, I'm an academic by training and by profession and I write um, academic works, you know, as a political scientist, I try to write works that are completely incomprehensible with lots of jargon and so forth. You know, that, that's what, that's what my job is, right? So I've got to prove my chops by continuing to write things that nobody reads, but this is a book that I really wrote in the hope that many people would would read it. So when I began this project, I thought, you know, I want to document Syrian stories because they're incredible and because they're important and because this is transforming Syria and transforming the Middle East. My intuition was just document and record personal stories. And once I started it, I didn't necessarily know what format the book would take um, or the many formats that my material might manifest into. But with time, I, I, I saw this book begin to crystallize in my own imagination. By doing more and more interviews, I could see the way these individual narratives were crystallizing into a shared narrative that, you know, each, each story was different in different ways, but there were many shared themes and there was a shared trajectory from that atmosphere of fear to the atmosphere of euphoria and liberation with the uprising and then to the experience of horrific violence of how people came to experience war with some who took up arms who others lived through bombings, and then eventually for these millions of Syrians the choice to leave the country and their new lives as refugees those arcs through those stages of the experience were shared and there were many different facets and issues and experiences within each phase that I also heard repeatedly. So as I did these interviews, I decided that I wanted to create this sort of collective narrative, this mosaic narrative that would capture, as you, you correctly use the word texture with the texture of, um, of this, of this collective experience. So I did these interviews and, 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 and collected long testimonials and cut the testimonials into smaller excerpts and then arranged the excerpts in a sequence that I thought could walk, uh, an, uh, your average American reader, your average English speaking reader through the Syrian story in a way that did not um, expect or assume any sort of background for sort of your average reader who might be curious about what's happening in Syria, but not really understand. This is a book that they could read that would be not heavy with theory and methodology, that would not be heavy with geopolitical analysis, that would be human and would be accessible and would help explain the Syrian conflict, but also do so in a way that was humanly moving and touching and lay bare the human stake of the conflict, express not only what this conflict is about, but really what it's been like for so many people to live it. So I wrote it in a way um, to be very accessible to a mass audience. And my hope is that it reaches as many people as, as possible. Um, I hope that people who are familiar with the Middle East and Syria might pick it up and get something new out of it that they haven't seen before. And as much, I hope that people who have no background in Syria, no background in the Middle East, maybe not even much interest in politics, might pick it up. And maybe because they appreciate the sort of the beauty of, of these testimonials that sometimes read like poetry or read like short stories, read like literature. I hope that that, that sort of literary entryway can be a way that they learn more about Syria and then, uh, and then really come to care, um, follow the issue, um, speak out about the issue, uh, speak out when there are mis, 
representations and untruths, call upon their elected officials to do more. Um, so I hope as many people as possible read, uh, read it, learn from it, um, and spread the word. No, that's my hope for it too. I really appreciated reading it just because uh, even as someone who has a background in Middle East studies and who has lived in the region many years, I felt that it really did offer a different side of the story. And it's tragic that it took this long for something like this mm -hmm. to come out because you're inundated with a certain type yeah. of voice and um, not necessarily the type of voice that moves people to action or moves them to learn more. And that's another problem is general ignorance about these subjects just because of the way our education systems are set mm -hmm. up. And, you know, the Middle East is largely um, undiscovered territory for many people intellectually. Well, what are your um, upcoming projects? What are you working on now? So um, I, uh, I have a, a grant from the uh, a German foundation called the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation to spend three summers in a row in Germany. So I was in Germany last summer doing interviews to finish up this book. And now I'm going forward, um, continuing to study Syrians in Germany, continuing to do interviews with Syrians. I'm doing interviews with you know, several interviews with the Syrian refugees in Germany a week. Um, but more and more my focus is about their lives as refugees, their lives in exile, their sense of belonging, of, of the future, of identity, of integration. Um, so whereas so much of this book is, is people who've been displaced from Syria looking back at their lives and their memories and their experiences inside Syria, I'm now following sort of the arc of people's experiences and now looking much more at their present reality and, and exile and what exile means. Um, and in that sense, it's been interesting for me that I've been able to, in many ways to sort of follow what is most interesting to Syrians themselves and what Syrians want to talk about. In the early uh, years, people I found were still very, very eager to talk about the uprising. And now many people, while Syria is still in their hearts and they still have family who are there and they follow the news and it's a part of them and it's a wound inside them, at least for Syrians in in, in Europe, their lives are also caught up with the demands of, of, of being displaced persons in these new societies. People are spending time learning the language, getting new job training, thinking about how they can find jobs, looking for apartments, maneuvering in a new society. There's a whole host of new challenges um, for, for Syrians in this phase and for the you know, 500,000 plus Syrians in 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 Germany, this is um, really something to document. And in some ways, I see what we what we have now is the foundations for a new Syrian diaspora. Now, of course, there are older waves of Syrian diasporas and migrants as well, those who left as labor migrants or students or for whatever reason over the years. But this mass outflow of Syrians is creating a new global scattering of of Syrians across the globe. And many people might eventually go back to Syria and many people for whatever reason might not. So much depends on when the war ends and under what conditions it ends and whether the Assad regime remains or there's some sort of political transition. But for the foreseeable future, many of those who've left Syria will try to make lives wherever they found themselves. So I'm, I'm continuing to do this interview-based work and sort of ethnographic participant observation-based work um, to try to document this new phase of the Syrian experience. Best of luck and good luck with getting this book out to the general public. And with Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. 